0: Anybody ever found the book of Hebrews to be slightly confusing at times? (laughs) I I don't know how many times I read it, and especially when I get into the middle section of Hebrews. From about like chapter 3 through chapter 9, all of a sudden, I just, I'm like, where is this going? I mean, it makes sense, but at the same time, it doesn't make sense. And it's not until I've kind of read it all that all of a sudden, the pieces start to fall into place. Uh, It's like some of my favorite movies that I will wind up watching. You start watching the movie. You think you're following along. You think you know what's happening. And then all of a sudden, you realize that you have no clue what's happening. 20 minutes later, it's like, ah, I think I've got it figured out. And then five minutes later, it's like, nope, still got no clue. Don't even know what's happening. You finish the whole movie. You're excited. It was like, that was a great movie, but I still have no idea what I just watched but I liked it. You watch it a second time, clears things up a little bit. About the fifth time I've watched that movie, all of a sudden I'm like, I think I'm now figuring this out. But it's like through the, the viewing process, I'm just confused. I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand. That's pretty much today's message, so I hope that it doesn't convey that way to you guys. Because we're going through this series about better, about how Jesus is better, and we've been talking about how Jesus is a better communicator, and even last week we were talking about how we have Jesus, who is the anchor, the one to keep us so that we're not drifting away. Uh, Today we're going to look at how Jesus is our high priest, and he's a better priest for us. But at the same time, that becomes a little confusing at times. It can become a little confusing for us because we don't have priests, at least not in the Christian faith. You might look at me as that, but I don't really act as a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor. It's a completely different thing, which can then be confusing because it's like, well, isn't a priest like a religious leader? Yes. Isn't a pastor a religious leader? Yes. So aren't they one and the same? No. And this can... Become difficult for us, especially when we don't have priests. It's like, what is that role of a priest? What does that look like in a priest? Well, here's a little bit of a lesson, if you will. If we go back into the Old Testament when we had the high priest, we go back to where they were wandering around and they were traveling and they had the tabernacle, and that was essentially where they would kind of come in and Inside the tabernacle, you had the outer court, and there was an inner court, and then you had the tent, and inside the tent, there was a little curtain, and you'd walk through, and now you're in the holy place, and then you would look, and there's another curtain, and behind that was the holy of holies, or the holiest, and in there, only the high priest could go, and really the only thing that was in the holy of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And in the ark of the covenant it basically contained, you know, the two tablets that Moses came down with. It had the 10 commandments on it. It also had like a golden pot full of manna and it had like the rod of Aaron. And so all of these were really symbolic to the Israelites, symbolic of God's provision, of God's protection, and of God's presence. And yet it was such a holy place, the holy of holies. That only the high priest could walk in and only once a year, only on the day of atonement could the holy or the high priest even enter in there. And so he would have to enter through the veil with a rope tied around his waist. In case he had missed one step on how to provide the specific offering, he would drop dead immediately. Nobody else could go in, so what do we have to do? reel his dead body out. <laughs> so that's why it was tied around. But to go in there, there were these sacrifices. And of course, in the Christian faith, we're not offering sacrifices of the blood of bulls and goats, and we're not lighting, you know, incense at the altars, and that's not stuff that we're typically doing. And because we're not typically doing it, we don't have a good understanding of it. And so if I were to try to simplify this and, and summarize what this is. It's we are and were a sinful people. And for us to try to meet with a holy God, something had to happen with that barrier. What is it that's the barrier that's blocking us? The, the barrier in the tabernacle was the veil. But that veil was representative Of our sin. Because you can go back to the garden and you can see that it was our sin that was separating us from God. Our sin is what separates us, our sin is that barrier. And there are lots of barriers that we face in life, and yet we don't often think of these, but sometimes it might be beneficial if we saw barriers and thought about God. It's one of the things I love doing, seeing the simple things in the world. The things that nobody else looks at and sees God. And I'm like, I'm going to see God in this. Somehow I'm going to see God in this. So all of a sudden I'm driving down a road and I see one of those, those, those little objects that's in the road. It's like this white A-frame and it has a beam going across to connect to another white A-frame. And there's these little orange lines on it. Uh, what are those called? Barricades, barriers. And what is it doing? It's preventing me from going that direction. I'm like, ooh, that's a barricade. I want to go that way. I need to go that way. But I can't go that way because something is blocking me from going that way. Just like I want to be with God. I need to be with God. But my sin will prevent me from being with Him. I see these barriers, these barricades, these obstacles, and I just, I can't help but to think of myself. And then what makes it even more difficult and makes it harder for us to even realize that is because inside Christianity, we wind up squabbling and arguing over little things. And they're they're, they're little things, but yet they're big things. And that's where it's a dilemma. Because if I were to say... You know, like semantics, the study of our words, the wordplay, if you will, that that's a little thing. It is a little thing. However, it's attached to a big thing. Let's just talk about our salvation real quick. Our salvation is a big thing. It's the biggest thing. It's the, the hugest thing. However, when we argue about it, it's often because of little things. Like there's this debate on if we're saved. Are we always saved? Or can we lose our salvation? And this book of Hebrews is often at the center of that debate amongst churches because of things that it says that is kind of confusing. Because while at one time it's clear,
1: the next time you look at it and it's muddy.
0: Like, I, I don't know. And I've had great friends in ministry, other pastors, that they're like, you're wrong. If you think that, you know, we can lose our salvation, okay, I might be wrong. It's possible. Now, the way I read the Bible, it looks that way to me, so it's not like I'm thinking this just because of something I've made up. It's something I see. And what and how could we possibly lose that? Because of barriers because of sin. I want to go through here and I want us to see this and whether or not you believe in a once saved, always saved approach or whether you believe that we could possibly lose our sin uh, or lose our salvation through sin, I want you to see in the word where it is, what it is that the Bible's actually saying. And regardless of how we see that eternal salvation and security, I want us to see the warning in this. Because ultimately, the little argument and the little debate that we have about this huge issue comes down to the author of Hebrews, who is the author writing to and talking to? That's ultimately it. Is the author solely talking to followers of Christ, or is he talking to followers of Christ and the unbelievers? If he's talking to both, it can be interpreted both ways. If he's only talking to one, there's only one way of seeing it. I think the author's clearly talking to believers, but I could be wrong. This is one of those that I don't think is something that we need to argue about, but I do think it's something that we need to be able to read, and so that we don't Act like watching that favorite movie that has all the twists and turns, and we wind up leaving enjoying it, but yet slightly confused. I believe that even today we just need to ask the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and minds. Let us see the truth of your word and what it is you're saying to us. So if you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, and we're going to act like some of my favorite movies. And bounce all over the place and take it one step at a time. And I'm going to believe that the Holy Spirit is going to clear everything up as I make it muddy. Hebrews chapter 4. I want to start here with just verse 16 because this would be kind of the, the foundational encouragement exhortation for us today. It says... Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Let us come boldly to the throne. Boldly, not not come fearfully. I mean, if if I'm going to be coming to the throne of judgment, I don't know about you, but if I'm going to the throne of judgment, I'm coming in fear. It's a reverential fear. It may also be a scared type of fear, too, because I know what I've done, and I know that he knows everything I've done, and if I'm coming to get judged based on what I've done, I should be afraid of that. There's a timidity that's going to be there. But he's not telling us, come boldly to the throne of judgment. He's saying, come boldly to the throne of grace, And now all of a sudden, I'm like, okay, I understand what grace is. Grace is the unmerited, unearned favor of God. It is getting what you don't deserve. So I didn't have to earn it. I don't deserve it. I can come and I can get it. And hey, I'm going to come boldly. I mean, I look at that like when you go to Costco and you know they got those those people standing out there giving away samples. Man, we're going up and down them miles. We're taking every sample we can get. And even if one of the kids doesn't get it, I'm grabbing one for them, and then I'm giving it to somebody else. We're coming boldly. And we didn't buy it. We don't deserve it. We didn't pay for it. But by God, we're getting it. <laughs> and so I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, we're coming so we can obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Anybody needs some extra mercy and grace in their lives? Ah, we ought to be coming boldly then. We're going to come boldly. And yet here's the thing, it's saying that we need to come boldly because there's still something in us that says that we can't come boldly. And I see this over and over again. People that just come to Christ and they're starting to work things out and they're like, I I believe in God, but I don't really know God. And why would God allow me to have a relationship with him? After everything I've done, after everything I've said, I know the things I've said about God. I know how I've referred to him and used his name in the past. And yet, he wants me to come. People struggle with this. People struggle with this, and this is a dilemma. But what is it that is creating that dilemma? It's this barrier. The barrier of sin. Isaiah talks about this in Isaiah 59, verse 2. He says, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. It's the sins that have separated. It's the sins that is that barrier. But yet, we're told to come to this grace, to the throne of grace, to obtain mercy, not getting what we deserve. Mercy is not getting what you deserve, grace is getting what you don't deserve. It's like two sides of the same coin. We look at this and we receive this, and it's like, well, this is great. Because Where we're at is not where we want to be. And and if your Bible has any like chapter or book headings in there, you may see in this chapter 4, there's a a little heading, at least in mine, that says, there's a promise of rest. And I'm sitting here and I'm thinking, I want some rest. I, I I want rest. I like kicking my feet up on a Saturday afternoon. Doing absolutely nothing? That sounds like rest to me. I've also realized that's not what God's talking about when he's talking about rest. He said rest. He didn't say relaxation.
1: There's a big difference there.
0: See, rest is resting from our work. What we've done. To obtain true rest, it's like reading the Ten Commandments. You know, we're to observe the Sabbath, keep it holy. What is the Sabbath? It is the seventh day. It is the day that God rested. That doesn't mean God did absolutely nothing. No, what God did when He was resting was He reflected on everything that He had done. When we rest, we ought to be reflecting on everything that He has done. And when we're told that there's a promise of rest... It's reflecting on what God's done. And if we can focus on what God's done, does it really matter what we've done?
1: Especially when what we've done is
0: created barriers. This started off in Hebrews 4.16. It said, therefore, right? Let us therefore. You've heard me say it once. You've probably heard me say it at least a dozen times. Every time there's a therefore, you need to look at what came before. Well, I started doing that. I started bouncing back to the B4s. And all of a sudden, every time I bounced back to a B4, I wound up getting up in verse 11, and then it had a therefore, which meant I had to go B4 again. And then I went up to chapter verse 1, and I saw another therefore, so then I had to keep going B4. And I bounced into chapter 3, and then I start looking around, and I saw a couple more therefores, like in verse 7. And then I'm like, well, man, I need to go even farther back. So I went to verse 1, and now all of a sudden there's another therefore, so I had to go before again. And then I came into where we were at last week. Last week, at the end of it, we looked at this. In verse 18 of chapter 2, it said that in, or for in that, he himself had suffered, being tempted, he's able to help those who are tempted. I'm like, okay, we've, we've kind of caught up here. Now we can start working forward because at least we know that here is Jesus, who is the better form of communication for us, the one that communicates more clearly. We don't have to listen to the old communications. We don't have to listen to messages delivered by angels. We get a message delivered from the Son of God himself. Like, that's the best kind of communication there is. And then we start looking at how Jesus is our anchor there in chapter 2. It's like, he's the one that keeps us from drifting away from the faith. And it tells us, because of this, he suffered. And he knows when we're tempted, and he's able to aid those who are tempted. Perfect. We've caught up. I've got all the B4s. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren. Yeah, see here, I'm stepping on toes. I'm stepping on toes because I told you I firmly believe that Hebrews is clear about who is being spoken to. Who is this letter written to? Holy brethren. Holy Brethren, seems clear to me, if it wasn't Holy Brethren and just Holy Brethren, I have a feeling the author would have said, hey, Holy Brethren and unholy unbelievers, like, I mean, you clearly address who you're talking to. I know we do that because I've done that with my kids. I'll be having a conversation. This is an A and B conversation. See your way out of it. Wasn't talking to you. This had nothing to pertain to you. I'll come talk to you later. Holy brethren, (laughs) partakers of the heavenly calling. Oh, now we're getting even more clarification on who is being spoken to. Consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus, who faithfully, who was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses was also faithful in all his house. Now, I just want to kind of point something out here because he's referring and talking to us, the holy brethren, the partakers, right? We're on the same page so far. But he's saying we need to consider, pay attention, give focus, set our minds on Jesus, who
1: is faithful. Just as Moses was faithful.
0: Fast forward here. Let's jump down to verse 12. Here's another, therefore. It says, beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you. Wait, look at that. What did it say? Beware, brethren. Brethren. We're still talking to the brethren, right? We're not talking to the world. We're talking to the brethren. The brothers and sisters in Christ. Beware, lest there be in any of you, brethren, partakers, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. This is a clear contrast to Jesus, who we're supposed to consider, who is faithful. But now, beware, lest any of you, any of us, have unbelief, are unfaithful, and depart from the living God. Verse 13, but exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ. And this might be the biggest little word right here in this passage. If we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast to the end. If that is a really big, small word. If. Beware that you don't have an evil heart. Beware that there's no unbelief in your heart. Beware lest you depart from the living God. Beware. Because we have become partakers
1: if we hold fast. If we're steadfast.
0: If If, but I love this because it's like, if, and here's the thing, some of us will struggle with this because, okay, if, if there's something I have to do, it's all about my works. No, if we hold the beginning of our confidence, our confidence is not in our ability. Our confidence is in God's ability. Our confidence is in the one that we're to consider our high priest who has already done all the work for us. That's what we hold fast to. That's who he, we hold fast to. And we will be partakers if we hold fast to him. If. Jump down to verse 18. And whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who did not obey? So we see that they could not enter because of unbelief. Now, I'm going to go ahead and give you a little heads up here, and you'll see this if you ever study the book of Hebrews. You can look at this. You will see that faith and obedience are used interchangeably throughout this book. They're used interchangeably the whole time. And when you're seeing faith, the opposite of faith in this book is referring to unbelief. And he's talking about this. You jump up in verse 18. Whom did he swear would not enter his rest? those who did not obey. Why? Because of their unbelief. He's telling us, and this is Israel, this is the children of Israel he's talking to. They were wandering out there, and he had promised rest. He had promised them rest. There is a rest that's coming. Not just that they inherited the promised land. No, he's like, there's something better that's coming. There is still a rest that you can enter into. We jump into chapter 4, verse 1, and we start to see this. It says, Therefore, since a promise remains of entering his rest, let us fear, lest any of you seem to have come short of it. For indeed the gospel was preached to us as well as to them, but the word which they heard did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in those who heard it. You could say not being mixed with obedience to those who heard it. Like, I'm looking at this and I'm like, man, the gospel was preached to us. The gospel was also preached to them. It's the same message. The same simple message about, guess what? We've sinned, we've messed up, and God's going to fix that. He's going to provide the solution for that. Because we can't do it on our own. And yet, even in that Old Testament and in the tabernacle as they're entering into the Holy of Holies, as they have to go through the veil to see it, there is a high priest that does that to atone for our sins once a year with a blood sacrifice. That's how it happens. That same message was preached to them, has been preached to us. The difference is we heard it and we took that message. We mixed it with faith. A belief of obedience. See, faith is more than just believing. The Bible talks about this. It says, I mean, come on, even the demons believe, but it doesn't do them any good. We have to have something more than just a belief. We have to have a belief that is evident. And how do you make a belief evident? Through obedience. And that's why the author of Hebrews is going through here and he's, he's laying this out. You've got to see faith. You've got to see obedience. You've got to see disobedience and you've got to see unbelief. And we, you and I need to be aware and beware lest we start to depart, lest we start to have unbelief, a disobedience that creeps in. So we jump down a couple more verses, verse 6 of Hebrews 4. Since therefore, it remains that some must enter rest because there is still a rest, and those to whom it was first preached did not enter because of their disobedience. We just read they didn't enter because of their disbelief, and now we're seeing they didn't enter because of their disobedience. I'm telling you, faith and obedience, they work hand in hand. It has to be there. So we see all this, and here we come up to another, therefore, chapter 4, verse 11. Let us therefore be diligent to enter that rest. Let us be diligent to enter that rest, lest anyone fall according to the same example of disobedience. For the word of God is living, it is powerful, it is sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It's a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. To him we must give account. But it's telling us be diligent that we enter that rest. Here's the thing, I'm just going to lay it out, I'm going to give you the the headline, I'm going to give you the, the exact step to enter rest before we even finish this message. If you want to enter the rest of God, you have to have faith. They didn't enter because of disobedience. They didn't enter because of disbelief. That means we do enter because of faith. We do enter because of obedience. I mean, if you've got faith in Christ, here's the thing. Obedience is not about us doing works. It's not. It's not about us doing like five Hail Marys and some jumping jacks and rolling around in circles and you must lift your hands when you're praising and worship and and you've got to read X amount of pages in your Bible and if you read too fast, well then you've got to spend more time in your Bible. It's not about a checklist. That's not what it's about. Our obedience is based in our faith that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is Lord, that means he is Lord over all, all of our lives. He tells us what to do, when to do it, how to do it. We are not our own anymore. We are not in control of our own lives anymore. He is, Lord, what do you want me to do? I will do it. That is faith. That is obedience. It's not about religious rituals and and anything that we have to follow like that. It's not a checklist. But at the same time, we even see what James tells us about faith. Faith without works is dead. You could look at it by saying faith without obedience is dead. Maybe like this. Faith without obedience is just belief. And even the demons believe, and how well does that work out for them? We have to have obedience. Obedience to him. That is the better way. That is the better rest. Because now all of a sudden we can keep working, we can be active, we can keep doing what he has called us to do because he's the one that enables us, he's the one that empowers us, he's the one that equips us. All we have to do is follow the leader. Like that was one of the most restful games that I ever played as a kid. The most restful games. I didn't have to think. I just had to follow. Like, come on, you want to have me start playing, like, cribbage as a kid? I got to start thinking and I got to start counting? I got to do math? I got to do math on a weekend? I'm not even in school and you're making me count? Like, no. Start playing a game like Monopoly? Now, I got to do math and I've got to do strategy because I've got to try to think five moves ahead about what property I want to get and how much money I might be able to get. And you got to save some back to make sure you got enough in case you land on somebody else's property. No, it's the weekend. I don't want to have to be doing math. I don't want to do schoolwork. I don't want to think. That's not restful. It might be fun, but it's not restful. You know what the restful game is? Follow the leader. Because all I got to do is keep my eyes locked on whoever's right in front of me. Whatever they're doing, I do. Thank God that He has shown us how to enter rest. It is follow the leader. We are followers of Christ. And if we do what Jesus did, who was faithful in obedience, we will be faithful in obedience. And just as he has entered that rest, oh, we will enter that rest. And I look at this and I see this and I'm like, I love this, especially when I read something like that and I'm like, oh, but I'm going to have to give account to him. I'm going to have to give account to him. And I'm one of those that I like reading all the way to the end, Sometimes I will even cheat on a book, and I'll just read the first chapter and the last chapter to see if it was any good, and that way I might read the middle. That might be how I first started reading the Bible. I read Genesis, and then I read Revelations, and then I just got confused. (laughs) It's like, I don't know what happened. I mean, like, I, I thought this was a Bible, and all of a sudden we're, like, describing, like, dragons and dinosaurs and stuff flying around, and... Something's got multiple heads and wings, and I'm like, I don't get it. But I read this, and I'm like, I have to give an account. And because I've read the end of the book, I saw that we have to give an account. I saw this passage in Revelations chapter 2. Jesus tells the church in Ephesus, he writes a letter. It's a letter to each of the seven churches that Jesus is saying. He calls them all in front of him. And he says, I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. And I'm thinking, yeah, that's, that's me. And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not, and you have found them liars. Yep, I've done that too. And you have persevered and have patience and have labored for my namesake and have not become weary. I mean, I got a little weary there for a bit, but I'm I'm doing better. And then I see verse 4, Nevertheless, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the first works, or else I will come to you quickly and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. But this is the church. I mean, because they were saved, I thought they were always saved, but now you're going to put out their lampstand? Because you know what they did wrong? They did so much right,
1: but they did something wrong. But what did they do wrong? He says, nevertheless, this is what I have against you there in verse 4. You've left your first love. Your first love. John tells us what the first love is.
0: He tells us how we love. Our first love is God. And I love this out of the New Living Translation, 1 John 5.3. Loving God means keeping his commandments. And really, that isn't difficult.
1: You left your first love keeping his commandments.
0: But what was his commandments? Well, Jesus told us that too. Jesus tells us in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 and 38, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This, this one here is the first and great commandment.
1: Loving God is keeping
0: his commandments. The first commandment is to love God. So when the church had left their first love, they had stopped doing the first commandment, which was to love. How is that that possible? I read this and I'm like, how is that possible? Because they're doing everything that God has told them to do. They've been patient, they've been working, they've been laboring. They're not bearing with those who are evil. And all of a sudden as I'm thinking this out loud and I'm talking to God about this, He reminds me of what Jesus said. There are many that will come to me on that day and said, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons into your name? Have we not done mighty works in your name? And Jesus says he will say to them on that day, depart from me, you who practice lawlessness, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Depart from me, you sinners. I didn't know you. Oh, you thought you were doing good? I don't know you. And why doesn't Jesus know us? Because we're not actually having a relationship with him. We're so focused on what we are doing that we lose sight of what he has done. (laughs) It's like playing the game of follow the leader. And instead of focusing on the leader, I'm focusing on my feet to make sure I'm taking the right steps And if you've ever tried to play a game like that, and all of a sudden somebody like turns real quick, you're going to run headfirst into a wall, headfirst into an obstacle, headfirst into a barrier, the barrier of not following orders, not following the leader, not being faithful, not obeying.
1: And then we come to Hebrews 4.14.
0: Seeing then that we have this great high priest Who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Other translations say, let us hold fast our profession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin, yet without disobedience, yet without unbelief. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. You see, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, the Old, they could only go through and have somebody that would intercede on their behalf, be a mediator on their behalf, to go into the presence of God on their behalf once a year and they had to offer everything precisely in an exact order because they themselves, those priests, were not perfect. They were sinful too. So as they're going in and trying to atone for your sins, they're trying to atone for their sins. But yeah, we have a greater priest who goes through that veil, but he didn't just go through the veil, he tore the veil down. And we see that in Matthew 27, 51. Jesus, it says, there, then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from the top to the bottom. The earth quaked and the rocks were split because what Jesus did on that day was he entered in to the Holy of Holies once and for all. He never had to go through again. All of your sins atoned, cleansed, washed by the sacrifice of his blood, the perfect sacrifice. And Hebrews 5, 9 tells us this. It says, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation
1: to all who obey him.
0: I love eternal salvation, and I believe that we have it. I believe we have it because of our faith in Christ. And our faith is more than a belief. Our faith is an obedience. We believe that Jesus is the son of God. We believe Jesus is our high priest. We believe Jesus is the only answer. And we believe it so much that we do more than the demons do. We don't just believe it. We live by it. We are people who live by faith in Christ. We obey what he says. All of a sudden, I realize this. I read this and I'm like, man... Jesus is the high priest who has given us better access because now we can enter in. We can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain the mercy when we've messed up and to find grace to help in the time of need, to find grace, grace that supernatural empowerment, enablement, equipment to do what it is that we can't do otherwise. What is it that we can't do otherwise? We can't obey. We can't stay sin-free without Christ. And I know it's a big thing if I were to say, hey, just like Jesus says, go and sin no more. You'd be like, well, easier said than done. Yes, easier said than done. Because the world is full of distractions. The world is full of things. Our own minds are full of distractions. But if you want to do it easy, start acting like a child. Just follow the leader. Just obey. Just do what he did. That's the answer. That's the solution. Because Jesus gave us a better way. He gave us a better roadmap. He gave us a better path. And he has cleared all barriers and all obstacles that are in our path and in our way that prevent us from entering the rest that God has.
1: It takes faith. And
0: faith is belief mixed with obedience. That's what we have to do. When I see this and it says, let us therefore come boldly to the throne, all of a sudden I'm like, you know what? I can come boldly now. I can come boldly. If I was living under the old covenant, there was no way I could come boldly because I'm not the high priest. And even if I was the high priest with a rope tied around my waist, I'm not sure how bold I'm actually going through that veil. I'm going to be second, triple, quadruple guessing every little thing that I've done. I mean, I only do it once a year after all. I might have forgot something in the last 365 days. I might have got it wrong and they're going to have to pull me out. But now the veil's not even there. The veil has been torn. The veil has been removed. Atonement covered, washed in the blood of the lamb. And it was once and for all. And so now I sit here and I'm like, yeah, I can come boldly. <clears throat> I don't have to get it right. I don't have to be right because Christ made me right. It's not based on what I did, what I've done, what I'll do. It's based on what he has done. And all I have to do is follow his lead. That's it. That's not work salvation. Work salvation is based in what I do. Faith salvation is based in what he's done. And I'm just following his lead. There's a lot of things that we are going to be facing in our lives and we face every single week. And a lot of it, I read this and I'm like, man, if we all had just a little bit more rest, A rest in our mind, a rest in our hearts, a rest in our body.
1: Man, that'd be so good.
0: Jesus was able to rest when he sat down on that throne. Able to rest because he was reflecting on what he did. He doesn't have to do it anymore. It's already been done.
1: If we can consider him
0: we can find that rest. Remember what he's done. Focus on what he's done. Consider what he's done. Because it's not about what I do. It's about what he's done. Preach that. I look at my message. I look at the notes. I Try to listen while I'm preaching it out. I'm not sure if any of that connected or not. Because as I'm reading it, I'm like, man, I'm going to have to listen to this one three more times like my favorite movies. (laughs) But what I do believe, and I have full confidence in, is that this isn't even about me preaching a message. I'm essentially just a puppet this morning. I'm opening my mouth. I'm letting sounds pass my lips. Doesn't even matter what syllables I placed out there. Because what I know is that God had a message for each and every one of you this morning. And just like I prayed this morning before we even started, that the Holy Spirit would speak the words that you needed this morning, that He would open your hearts and minds. And I believe He's done that and that He's continuing to do that. I believe that we're all about to enter rest. Let's pray.